However, Mary did spot a narrow path through the weeds starting right where she was standing, going all the way down the slope. So she told her husband, but he told her that it was probably just like an animal track. But for some reason, Mary just couldn't get this feeling out of her. You know, she just had that gut feeling. So she asked her husband again to just please go check. So he started to carefully walk down the steep embankment and he went down about 15 meters. He started looking around and then all of a sudden he screamed out to Mary, call the police. Hey everyone, welcome back to What Happened with Jackie Flores. I'm Jackie and I hope you guys are doing super, super well. So welcome to episode 25. Today we're gonna be talking about what happened to Jessica Patrick Bowser. Now this case really upset me because a young mother was murdered and pretty much nothing was done about it. The RCMP didn't want to investigate right away and the family basically had to do everything themselves. I watched this documentary called Where Women Go Missing in Canada and one of the stories that they included was Jessica's story. And and you got to hear from her family and from other people involved in the case. It was really sad, you know, hearing from the family directly and just hearing how heartbroken they were over what happened to Jessica and how they still don't have answers today. It's also upsetting how there is very little coverage on her case. So with that, let's jump right in and let's talk about what happened to Jessica Patrick Balser. Jessica Patrick Balser was born on January 8th, 2000 to Michael and Maureen Patrick in Fort Babine, a reserve for the Lake Babine Nation, which is a community that she was a member of. Lake Babine Nation is the third largest indigenous first nation in British Columbia with about 2,000 members. As I mentioned in episode 24, where we talked about the case of Leah Anderson, first nation refers to the indigenous tribes and communities which the land first belonged to. The Lake Babine Nation has 27 reserve lands, three of which were inhabited by communities year-round, and two were inhabited year-round from time to time. Out of the 2,000 or so members, some people choose to live on the reserves while some people live in the nearby towns, which was the case with Jessica, who now lived in Smithers, which was about 90 miles away from Fort Babine. Now, Jessica had a pretty rough childhood. She was raised in Fort Babine with her older brother and with her parents until they eventually split up when she was just about seven years old. Both her father, Michael, and her mother, Maureen, struggled with alcoholism. So because of this, the children were actually taken away from them and they were put into foster care with families in Smithers. From age seven to age 14, she would bounce back and forth between foster homes and then she would also stay with some of her relatives. Now, seeing his children bouncing from home to home was like a wake-up call for Michael. He decided that it was time for him to make a change in his life because he wanted to get his children back. He stopped drinking, he found a stable place to live, and he just started to get his life together. However, authorities felt like this wasn't enough, and they still weren't convinced that he was fit enough to be a parent. So in the meantime, Jessica and her brother continued to remain in foster care. Michael says that this just broke his heart even more because he was doing his best to be a better parent but it just wasn't enough. He would receive phone calls from Jessica and from her brother from their foster homes and they would literally call him crying, begging him to take them back home. Michael had done everything he could to be a better parent, so in the meantime, he told his kids to remain strong. My heart broke reading that. I mean, the fact that Michael was trying to be a better person and had quit drinking and, you know, got his life together, but he still wasn't able to get his children is so sad. In a way, this can cause generational trauma and it's kind of similar to 
what happened with the residential school system. You know, these kids are taken away from their families, from their backgrounds, from their culture, and they're placed into these homes where they really have no connection to these people. And, you know, sometimes these people have no knowledge of their indigenous background, so it can cause a lot of trauma to these children. Now, time passed, and when Jessica was 14 years old, she was finally placed back in the care of her father. Michael described his daughter as someone who was happy, vivacious, and spiritual. He says that she was just very outgoing, she believed in Jesus, she loved Marilyn Monroe, and she also really loved makeup, which I could tell because based on her photos, her makeup looked absolutely stunning. I mean, just in general, Jessica was really beautiful. Michael was so happy to be reunited with his children, and Jessica was happy, but at the same time, she was also sad because she missed her mom. While Michael had made a change in his life, Maureen was still struggling. She was actually homeless in downtown Smithers, and Jessica was really worried about her mother's safety and about her mother's well-being. Every day she would worry about her, but there really was nothing that she could do to help her as Maureen was struggling with addiction and she was just lost in life. Now, Jessica also had an older sister named Kirsten who basically raised her. I'm not sure if Kirsten was from the same dad or from the same mom. I was not able to find details about that, but Kirsten played such a huge role in Jessica's life. She basically raised her. Another important figure in Jessica's life was her Aunt Mary, who was from her dad's side of the family, and they also had such a close relationship. Jessica would often crash at her aunt's house with her uncle and with her cousin Jackie. If she wasn't staying with her aunt, then she would sometimes stay with other friends, with other cousins, so she kind of just like hopped around from place to place. Jessica and Jackie had a really good relationship. They were pretty much best friends. Jackie says that Jessica was so goofy, bubbly, and she just really loved her family. She had been in survival mode for so long because of everything that she went through in her childhood, but she never put her sadness on other people and she always tried to uplift everyone. At this point, things seemed to be going well in Jessica's life. You know, she was reunited with her family. She had a loving friend group. And at this time, she also met a boy. They began dating and she actually got pregnant at the age of 17 and gave birth to her daughter, Alea. Now, Jessica fell in love with her daughter. She absolutely adored her. She said that she was a diamond in her eyes and she just wanted to give Alea the life that she never had. Michael was also super happy about this. You know, he was excited to have a granddaughter and the family was just really close at this time. Now, the last time that Michael saw Jessica was in August of 2018. He was living in Houston at the time, which was about an hour away from Smithers. So he left Houston that day to go drive and visit Jessica, her baby, and the rest of the family. They all had plans to go to the town's annual county fall fair. Now, the day of the carnival was such a good day. The family was together, it was sunny, and Michael was just so happy to be spending time with his daughter and with his granddaughter. He says that Jessica was glowing and looked so happy going on the rides with Alea. During this trip to the carnival, Michael asked Jessica if she wanted to move in with him in Houston. That way they could be together and he could also help raise Alea. Jessica agreed to this plan. She was excited to move in with her dad and she told him that she would see him again in three days. But unfortunately, that would be the last time that Michael would ever see his daughter alive. On the evening of August 31st, 2018, 18-year-old Jessica went over to her aunt's house to drop off Alea so that she could babysit her, while Jessica went to a party at the Mountain View Motel on Highway 16 in Smithers with some of her friends. Now, her plan was to go to the party and then come back to pick up Alea in a few hours. 
So Jessica dropped her daughter off at her aunt's house, gave her a big, long hug goodbye, and then she left to the party. Now, the timeline from here gets a little bit blurry. Based on witness accounts, a fight broke out during this party, and the police actually showed up to the motel room to break up the fight. And after that, the party just continued. They didn't, like, break apart the party or anything like that, so everyone just continued partying at the motel. The night went on, but Jessica still hadn't come back to her aunt's house to pick up her daughter. Her aunt started calling her, but she wasn't answering her phone. She was sending her text messages, but was receiving no responses. This was very unlike her. Her cousin Jackie says that Jessica always stayed in touch with her family, especially when it came to her daughter. She would always call or text, and no matter what, she would find Wi-Fi so that she could communicate with people. So the fact that she wasn't answering her phone was very out of character and also very suspicious. The family continued to wait around for the rest of the night, but Jessica never showed up. The next morning, it was the same thing. Jessica had still not shown up to pick up her daughter. She hadn't communicated with anybody since the night before. Again, the family did think that this was weird, but her Aunt Mary also figured that maybe Jessica was with her boyfriend or with a friend, and that's why she hadn't come home yet. However, the next morning on September 1st, Aunt Mary knew that something was wrong, so she called the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, also known as the RCMP, and told the police about Jessica's disappearance. The RCMP was not too helpful. They honestly thought that Jessica was still out partying somewhere and that she would be back soon. Meanwhile, Jessica's sister Kirsten was calling around to different friend groups trying to figure out what had happened to her or if anyone had seen her sister. A few days later, Jessica's family called the RCMP to check in on how the investigation was going. And that's when they learned that Jessica's name wasn't even added to the missing persons list. Now, this reminded me so much of the Amber Tookerow case. I covered that on my channel a while ago, but but it was kind of the same scenario. Amber had gone to a party at a hotel. She never came back. And when her family tried to report her as missing, the RCMP said that she was simply out partying and they never added her to the missing persons list. Also, if you guys remember, I talked about what happened to Leslie Palacio and how she went missing and her family tried to report her as missing, but police in Vegas were also stating that she was just out partying and they didn't take the family seriously. It's really upsetting when police don't believe the families. You know, they know their loved ones more than the police do. So if they say that something is wrong, then something must be wrong. So the fact that the RCMP did not add Jessica to the missing persons list was very upsetting to the family. So this is when her aunt Mary decided to launch her own party in search of Jessica. She gathered as many people in the community and she said that they needed to start looking and doing the investigation themselves. She wasn't going to wait around for the RCMP to finally take her seriously. I mean, every hour counts when someone is missing, so she immediately got to work. Which is really sad, you know, the fact that Mary felt like there was no other option besides doing it herself because she couldn't depend on the police to help her. Jessica's family had to take days off of work to do this investigation, which again should have been handled by the RCMP. At this time, Michael, Jessica's dad, was working at a lumber camp near Houston when he got the call letting him know that his daughter was missing. He immediately drove to Smithers and he joined the search party for his daughter. Family members were driving all around Smithers and in all of the nearby towns 
towns and on the reserves to look for Jessica. They were knocking on doors, asking people if they had seen her. They hung up missing posters. I mean, they really did everything that they could think of. They searched all the towns across Highway 16, a 725-kilometer stretch of road from Prince George to Prince Rupert, which are two cities in British Columbia. They would also follow any potential leads that they got, but they still hadn't found Jessica. The family was doing all of this by themselves, and it wasn't until September 3rd, a few days after Jessica was last seen, that the RCMP officially reported her as missing. However, it wasn't until three days after this, on September 6th, that the RCMP released this information to the public and notified them about Jessica's disappearance. I mean, at this point, it had been six days since she was last seen, and it seemed like the RCMP was barely starting to investigate. Now, as I mentioned, the timeline for what happened after Jessica left the party is a little bit blurry. We don't really know what happened. According to the missing posters, the last place Jessica was seen was at a nearby McDonald's, which would have been a four-minute drive from the motel. She was last seen wearing jeans and a black sweater. So I'm assuming that after she left the party at the motel, she walked to McDonald's to get some food. From there, we don't know what happened, who she was with or where she went to. If she got in someone's car, nothing. Now, I don't know if they got this information through surveillance footage from the McDonald's or if a witness told them about this. As I said, there really isn't that much information about Jessica's case, so I don't know the full details. On September 15th, Mary put together another search party for Jessica, but only her husband and her nephew were able to join. It had just been a little bit over two weeks since Jessica was last seen, and Mary was now starting to think about the worst case scenario. The morning of the search party, Mary was talking to her husband about what could have happened to Jessica. She was starting to think that maybe someone had accidentally hit her. You know, maybe Jessica was walking along the highway and she got hit by a car. This person freaked out and decided to just get rid of her body instead of calling the police. So she asked her husband, you know, where would someone get rid of her? And that's when the both of them agreed that the one place people would go to hide a body would be up the ski hill. So they grabbed some binoculars and they decided to head up Hudson Bay Mountain to the roadside lookout, where they would have a wide view of the entire valley. They looked out at the valley, searching for any items that may belong to Jessica, but they had no luck. However, Mary did spot a narrow path through the weeds, starting right where she was standing, going all the way down the slope. And something in her gut just told her that they needed to go look there. So she told her husband, but he told her that it was probably just like an animal track. But for some reason, Mary just couldn't get this feeling out of her. You know, she just had that gut feeling. So she asked her husband again to just please go check. So he started to carefully walk down the steep embankment and he went down about 15 meters. And that's when he came across a bunch of conifer trees. He started looking around and then all of a sudden he screamed out to Mary, call the police. He started screaming and screaming and Mary says that she just went into shock. She said that she's never heard a man scream like that before and the reason that her husband was screaming was because he had just found the body of his 18-year-old niece, Jessica. The entrance to the mountain was only an eight-minute drive from the motel. Jessica's body had just been left there next to a discarded washing machine in the middle of nowhere. Now, it was easy for Jessica's uncle and for her aunt to identify her because of her long, dark hair and because she was wearing the clothes that she had left the aunt's house wearing. 
Now, according to her family, she was laying down, but she was also kind of like sitting up. Like it looked like she was sitting down, but also like laying down. So they said the position of her body was just so odd. They also said that, quote, her tank top was pushed up just below her breasts, like she was placed there. Now, by the time she was found, nature had been getting to Jessica's body for about two weeks and she was decomposing. I can only imagine how horrific this must have been for them to see. You know, even professionals emotionally struggle with seeing something like this, so it must have been so hard for the family. Also, the family shouldn't have been the ones to find their loved one's body. You know, that should have been the job of the RCMP. They should have been out there searching, you know, leading search parties, going up the hill to search for clues, and they should have been the ones to find Jessica's body. The family should not have been doing all of this and they shouldn't have to see their loved one in that way. Mary says that if it wasn't for her and her husband's efforts, she honestly believes that they would have never found Jessica's body. Now, when Michael got the call letting him know that his daughter's body had been found, he immediately rushed to the spot and he says that he didn't even want to look down there. You know, he didn't want to look at his daughter in that position because he wanted to remember his daughter the way he last saw her, which was at the fair where she was glowing and she was happy. After they found Jessica, Mary and her husband immediately called the RCMP and they arrived shortly after and they sealed off the area. Then, days later, on September 19th, the police finally confirmed to the public that the body found was Jessica. I'm not sure why they waited this long when the family normally identifies a body and they already had, but maybe they were checking dental records just to be sure. After this, Jessica's remains were taken to the major crime unit in Prince George to determine her cause of death. However, the police have never revealed a cause of death, and in fact, the RCMP just completely stopped communicating with Jessica's family members. In 2019, Jessica's cousin Jackie said that the major crime unit said that they would share Jessica's autopsy results with them in March, and then they pushed it to May, but when her and her family tried calling and texting them in May, they got no response. At this point, it's almost been a year later, and the family still has no idea how Jessica died. Now, Jackie says that she believes that the major crimes unit has done an exceptional job, but she also wants them to at least respond to them and admit to the family that they have no information or that the family just has to wait a little bit longer for it. Jackie and Mary were very frustrated because they were the ones that had to find Jessica all on their own with no help from the RCMP. And again, they still had no insight into what investigation they were conducting. Now, in all the cases I've covered, I've really never heard of something like this. The fact that a year later the family doesn't know how Jessica died or if her death is being investigated is honestly so disturbing to me. I don't understand how they could treat Jessica and her family this way. Now, as for how the RCMP says that they handled the case, they say that they have been very communicative with Jessica's family, but that at this time, there really just isn't information to reveal, which is so confusing. Like, how do you not have no information to tell the family? Now, that was in 2019, and now in 2023, Jessica's cause of death has still not been determined by investigators, and no suspects have ever been arrested in her case. I mean, it really seems like no one has even been interviewed. Now, the RCMP claims that this case remains active and that it's a high priority. They're continuing to investigate whether there is any evidence of foul play involved in Jessica's death, and they're also speaking to other people who were last with her. Which I wonder why they're questioning if foul play was involved, because it's not like 
Jessica put her body up there herself. And just by the way that she was found, it really did seem like someone had left her there. So I just don't understand how they're still questioning if foul play was involved. But Jackie feels like the police are giving them the runaround. The major crime unit will check in with the family every six months or, you know, three to four months, very sporadically. They basically just tell the family that they haven't forgotten about them, that Jessica is still first on their list, and that they want to make sure that this case doesn't become cold. They said Jessica is a priority, but they also feel overwhelmed with other cases, which is very confusing. I mean, they're overwhelmed with other cases, meaning that they're just letting Jessica's killer continue to go free in the meantime. It just makes no sense. Like, how do you not have enough time to investigate a murder? Jessica's sister, Kirsten, also feels the same way Jackie does about Jessica's case. She said that she's called the cops, but no one has said anything. And she's just getting really frustrated at this point. She also doesn't know what could have happened to her sister or who could have done this. She did hear that Jessica owed money to someone, but that's about it. She doesn't know the full details of that or who she owed money to, why, or if that's even true. She just doesn't understand why somebody would want to hurt her sister. The family has spoken out about how the RCMP treated them at the start of the investigation, how they didn't want to list Jessica as a missing person, and how they didn't help search for her in the first few days. So the RCMP has come out and they have defended themselves saying that Jessica was officially reported missing to them at 5.20 p.m. on September 3rd. So that's three days after she had gone missing and not the day after when the family first reported it. They also added that between September 3rd to September 15th, they conducted multiple searches in an effort to not only locate Jessica, but to also identify anyone who may have been involved in her disappearance. The RCMP spoke to the CBC, which is a large news media company in Canada, and said that along with these searches, they also obtained multiple warrants, but that they have no information to reveal about what these warrants were for. So they haven't stated if they went to get a warrant for, you know, her boyfriend, for her cell phone, for anything like that. So we really don't know what these warrants were for or what they led to. We also don't know when these were conducted and the family doesn't even know the details about this either. I mean, the RCMP is just really hush-hush about everything. So the RCMP is basically trying to defend themselves stating that they did do the best that they could but you know Jackie honestly believes that the family did more investigating than the RCMP ever did. She says that this was a very traumatic thing for her family to go through you know, they had to come across her body and it was bad enough that they were worried about her safety, but they didn't have to come across her body while they were searching for her. They didn't know if they would find her alive or dead. And as I mentioned, no family should ever have to go through that. You know, Jessica's family should not have been the ones to find her body. As for Jessica's dad, he's also very fed up with how the RCMP has handled this case. And he's actually tried to find his own clues about this. And he actually went after a suspect in Smithers himself. I don't know how he got this guy's name, but he found this guy who he thought was involved in Jessica's death and he went to confront him. He stood in front of this guy who was driving a moving truck and the guy actually ran him over. Michael ended up in the hospital with head and back injuries, broken bones, and fractures. He says that the RCMP have left him and his family completely in the dark about his daughter's death. He said, quote, The major crimes unit hasn't told me anything to this day. 
Was she raped? How was her hair? What position was she in? They told me it would interfere with their investigation if they told me. I'm so hurt and tired of them not telling me anything. It's so understandable for Michael to have these questions. I mean, especially because of how Jessica's shirt was. The fact that it was placed underneath her breasts definitely indicates to a lot of people that maybe she was sexually assaulted. And maybe that was a motive for this murder. If they don't want to reveal this information to the public, I still think that they should at least tell her dad. You know, he has a right to know what happened to his daughter and he has a right to get these answers. Now, Michael also believes that the RCMP is racist and white. He says that they don't give a crap about indigenous people and that this has been going on against their people for 500 years and he is determined to get justice for Jessica. A week after finding her body, her family drove down to Prince George to retrieve her and to give her proper burial, even though they had no answers about what happened to her. So since they were going to go bury her body, that meant that the RCMP had conducted their autopsy and what's weird is like how are they letting the family you know bury her body without even telling them how she died I just don't understand how they had no answers to the family about her cause of death or if she was sexually assaulted or anything like that now the authorities had put her in a steel box and it had to be a closed casket funeral because of the state of decomposition and you know other things that had happened to her body being left in nature Michael said it just felt so surreal to be driving a car with his daughter's body in the back along the highway of tears which we will get into a little bit later about the highway of tears now he said that while he was driving he could actually smell death when they brought jessica's body back to smithers thousands of people from towns villages and first nations came to pay their respects they also showed up in red to honor missing and murdered indigenous women now, Jessica's dad said that he believes his daughter brought a lot of people together in her death, and he has never before seen a procession like that in his life. Now, let's talk a little bit about where Jessica went missing. Highway 16 is often called the Highway of Tears, where dozens of indigenous girls and women have been murdered or gone missing since the 1960s. Now, the exact number is believed to be over 40, but many believe that that number is much higher. But the RCMP only acknowledges 18. And after seeing how Jessica's case was handled, I can see why it's easy to believe that that number is much larger. Now, locals say that the reason why so many women are murdered or go missing around the Highway of Tears is because the highway sees a lot of traffic from out-of-town truckers and laborers. Now, some of these laborers were brought into the area to build the Coastal Gas Link, a natural gas pipeline that connected British Columbia to Kitimat on the west coast of Canada. Now, to house these laborers, several laborers or man camps were set up around the area in about 14 locations and they had about a thousand workers living in them. Now, some of the locals view these men as a threat to their women and children in their community. And their concerns are valid because these men have not been vetted, their communities are not protected, and when crimes do happen, they are rarely properly investigated, which was the case here with Jessica. Also, the terrain of the area makes it so easy for a murderer to like move silently 
you know, not leave behind any traces and potentially never get caught. In fact, a 2017 report by the Firelight Group, Lake Babi Nation, and the Nakatsli Wutan Nation, I apologize if I said that wrong, suggested a correlation between the existence of these camps and an increase in violence against women, increased rates of sexual assault, higher rates of addiction, STI spreads, and family violence. Representatives for the Coastal Gas Link actually responded to this report and said that they promote a workplace that cultivates a safe, secure, respectful, diverse, and inclusive culture. They also added that their workforce lodges are like small communities, and like every community, they are focused on the prevention, safety, and security of their community and that of their neighbors. They said that they have zero tolerance for discrimination or harassment of any kind, and that that extends to behavior in local communities. Now, a lot of people feel like this sounds like a PR statement, and there really is no proof as to what the companies and the authorities are doing to you know, keep their employees in check and stop them from targeting vulnerable communities. Jessica's dad, Michael, has since joined the Crazy Indian Brotherhood, a group formed in 2007 that protects women and children across Canada. They patrol the streets looking out for the vulnerable while also trying to catch drug dealers and killers. They dress kind of like a motorcycle gang, but Michael says that they only dress that way to appear tough and like to intimidate the town's drug dealers. Jessica's death has inspired him to join the group in 2020, and he says that he's not only out there looking for drug dealers, but he's also looking for his daughter's killer. Jessica's death has also brought him closer to her mom, Maureen, and he also checks on Jessica's mom every single day. She continues to struggle with an addiction to alcohol, and she is living in a shack near downtown Smithers. In 2021, town officials actually bulldozed a homeless camp there, including Maureen's tent, where she kept a large frame photo of Jessica. Mike demanded the town to replace a photo frame and present it to Maureen, and they agreed to do so at an informal presentation in February where Smithers Mayor Gladys Atrill gave a newly framed photo to Maureen in the lobby of the town office. Maureen quietly said, thank you, as she clutched it. Now, there are no words to describe how painful this has been for every member of Jessica's family and for the community as a whole. But now, let's talk about some unanswered questions and theories that people have. So even though the RCMP refuses to give the family any answers, I do wonder what really happened to Jessica? We know serial killers are common in this area, so maybe she just, you know, unfortunately fell victim to someone either at the party that she was at or later at the McDonald's. The fact that where she was found is only eight minutes away from the motel where the party was held at speaks volumes. But the fact that she even went to McDonald's at all, like, cannot even be confirmed. I only saw it mentioned on her missing poster, but all other sources have no mention of the McDonald's. So who saw Jessica at this McDonald's? Is there surveillance footage of her there? I mean, where did this even come from? Also, some people report seeing her with a sweater on at the McDonald's, but she wasn't wearing one when she was found. So where is that sweater? I do wonder if the RCMP ever interviewed any of the people at the party. And if they did, why didn't they make that information public? Jessica's sister mentioned something about Jessica owing money to someone. Who was this person? Were they called in for an interrogation? And is that even true? Another question people have is about her phone. I mean, there really is no information about whether police looked into her phone records. You know, do they know when her phone was turned off? Was her phone found with her? Was her phone ever found anywhere? I mean, this happened in 2018, so police should be able to track down her phone records. I also wonder if people saw her leave the party with someone. Did she leave the party by herself? I mean, 
mean, I feel like there's just like so many things that are still unanswered. And I just wonder why there isn't that much coverage on Jessica's case. I mean, I was barely able to find any information about her. So I definitely think that her case needs more coverage and people need to be reminded about how this is still unsolved. Now, someone at that party saw Jessica in her last moments and know something, and they should do the right thing and speak up. It is disheartening to see that we have such little information about what happened to even try and, you know, put these theories together. Kirsten says that she misses her sister's laugh and amazing humor, but also simply just misses loving her. Jackie now works as an indigenous community legal worker, and she advocates for better resources for indigenous children. She especially works with children who are in protection care, like Jessica had been as a kid. Jackie says that she's not giving up on finding out who did this to Jessica. She says that the police are setting a precedent that these murderers can get away with murder. She refuses for what happened to Jessica to become another cold case. Michael feels the same way. He wants to keep Jessica's memory alive, and he also wants to protect his granddaughter, Alea. He said that he's going to have some great stories about Jessica to tell Alea about who her mother truly was. He said, quote, I'm a warrior and I'll work to keep these streets safe for Jessica and my granddaughter. The family has vowed that Jessica's case won't become another cold case like so many before her that have disappeared along the highway of tears. If you have any information regarding Jessica Bowser's death, please contact the Smithers RCMP at 250-847-3233. If you wish to remain anonymous, please contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-TIPS. But all right, you guys, that's pretty much all the information I have for today's video. I will definitely keep you guys posted on the investigation or if there's ever any other movements in Jessica's case. I would encourage you guys to continue to share her flyer, you know, share her story and just keep the word out there. Thank you guys so much for being here and for taking the time to listen to what happened to Jessica Patrick Balser. After covering both Leah and Jessica's cases, I know one thing for sure. Indigenous women need to be protected. Please consider supporting and donating to organizations like Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women, or any other organization that is bringing awareness to this horrific problem and uplifting victims voices. They are doing the work that our government and authorities should be doing. As I mentioned in Leah's video, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women's Day is observed on May 15th, and you can show your support by wearing red. But yeah, that's pretty much everything I have on today's case. I wish there was more information that I could share with you. I feel like this is one of those cases where there was barely any articles or coverage and it was just really hard to like gather the information, which again, just leads back to how undercoveraged indigenous women's cases are and why it's so important to continue to share them. If you're listening to the audio version of this and are gonna go watch the video version on my YouTube channel later this week, make sure to leave me a comment under my YouTube video with the hashtag AudioFamilia to let me know that you guys are from the audio fam. If there's ever any other cases that you would like me to cover, you can also leave me a YouTube comment, or you can send me a message on Instagram. Please don't forget to follow, rate, and review what happened wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to my channel, True Crime Jackie, on YouTube for full video episodes. You can also find me on Instagram and on TikTok at True Crime Jackie. Bye, guys.